Anne Lamott says, I do not understand the mystery of grace except that it meets us where we are and does not leave us where we found it. It accepts us where we are but does not leave us where we found it. Grace happens. Grace is a, is, an un, is a gift given freely, not just to people who believe the right things, but to the entire world. Grace happens, but grace also confronts. Grace challenges. Grace steps into the middle of whatever messiness is going on in your life and calls you to account, calls you to pay attention. Now, now be, let's be clear about this. Grace says to us at the beginning, in every encounter, you are already loved. You are already accepted. There is nothing you can do to change that. You are loved and accepted. And because that's true, because of that love and acceptance, grace then challenges us and confronts us to look at the, whatever the mess is that brought grace upon us in the first place. To consider what new life we might discover if we can allow grace, the brilliant and beautiful light of grace, to shine on our lives, sending us in a new direction, one towards health and healing and, and wholeness. Sometimes people get confused about grace. They think that grace is about forgetting, that it's about forgetfulness. Oh, let's just forget what happened. Never mind. Don't worry. Push it off to the side and let's move on. That is not grace. And in fact, that's not helpful. It can be harmful to just forget something when there's a mess that needs to be cleaned or taken care of or, or addressed itself. But we have a hard time admitting and acknowledging our need for grace because there's something in our culture, I think it's even in American, specific to American culture, that says we don't want to admit ever that we might need grace, that we might need forgiveness, that we might need help through whatever mess it is we find ourselves in the midst of. We want to earn our way, prove our way, make sure we pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and then say, see, okay, I don't need it, I've taken care of this stuff myself. We list the accomplishments, we, we list our, our skills or our abilities or whatever it is, and all the time we miss out on the beauty and the power and the potential joy of new life that comes with grace. My friend Robert Capon was a brilliant theologian. He's in the, he's in the resurrection now. He, in fact, 20 or 25 years ago, was a spiritual searcher here at, at First Community. I want you to hear his words. Let's put them up on the screen. Grace doesn't sell. You can hardly even give it away because it works only for losers and no one wants to stand in their line. I know that sounds kind of harsh, but leave it up there for a moment. Because it works only for losers and no one wants to stand in their line. What Cape on is saying was what I tried to say a moment ago. We, we have a hard time acknowledging our need for grace. It seems to be it's for something else. After all, we're accomplished. We've achieved this and we've done this and, and we didn't really mean whatever it was that we're worried about, that you're worried about. It's fine. Let's just forget about it and move on. Capon wants us to know. I dare say Jesus wants us to know that grace confronts and challenges and invites us to new life, to new way of being with each other and with the world. James Moore is a good preacher, Methodist preacher down in Texas. He says that grace requires grit. I love the alliterative way that sounds, the way it just kind of rolls off the tongue. Grace 
requires grit, maybe even a little bit of gumption. He says that in Texas, grit means courage. If you've got true grit, you've got courage. You've got the willingness to face anything that will come at you. And you need grit and courage when faced with grace because sometimes the grace is there in recognition of some place you and I have messed up. Grace requires grit courage. It's Brene Brown who helps us understand that courage can be enhanced and strengthened by curiosity. When we become curious about what new life might be waiting for us, when we become curious about what new skills or, or, or ways of conversation, of being in relationship with each other that can help us get through it to a, to a new day, to a new sense of, of being and wellness and, and health, that curiosity then strengthens us to take on whatever it might be, no matter how difficult it is to name it and face it. The problem is, like I said a moment ago, we're not always ready to be curious. We're not always ready to grow. In fact, some of us, and I'm, I'll raise my hand and say I'm one of them, some of us want to be the expert in the room. Some of us want to be the one who's the knower, the one with the answers. No matter what the issue might be, there's too many of us. Maybe most of us, I don't know, but too many of us want to be the expert, want to be the knower, be the one with the answers, all the while avoiding whatever the real issue itself may be. Brene Brown goes on to say that the reason for that sometimes, many times, is because we're afraid. And we're afraid of being shamed. That if we're not the expert, if we're not the knower, if we're not the one who's got the answers on how to solve whatever it is, the truth about who we are might come out. Now, let me be clear. We need experts. Back in July, when I was very ill with COVID, I called an expert, my doctor. We had a telehealth conversation. He prescribed a drug for me. Within six hours of taking the medicine, I felt much, much better, 90% better, frankly and honestly. I want experts in my life when it comes to car repair and, and body repair and those kinds of things. But most of the time in the relationships that you and I have with each other, we don't need experts. We don't need knowers. We need trust, courage, grit, a little bit of gumption. And when we're able to do that, grace becomes amazing. We're in our sixth year of ministry together. Does that sound like a lot? It's, I, just, I was writing the sermon this week and realized we've, I'm coming up on my sixth anniversary as, as your pastor. And by this time, you've probably figured out that my all-time favorite hymn, well, one of my top favorites we sang at the beginning of the service, but my all-time favorite hymn is Amazing Grace. Now, people have told me throughout the years that it's kind of cheesy, it's a little bit smarmy, it's kind of a cliche, the musicality is weak. I've heard all of those things, and let me be clear, I don't care. <laughs> I can't hardly sing through it without tears forming in my eyes, especially the second verse. You know it. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. I tell you every time my voice catches in my throat. Every time I can feel the, fear, the tears in my eyes. Every single time. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace my fears relieved. 
my friend Robert Capon, who I mentioned a moment ago, once said to me over, over dinner, it's always, always, always in that order. It was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. How many of us, though, are stuck in that space between those two beautiful phrases? How many of us can't get to the next phrase? How many of us want to stay there in fear because we're afraid of what it might happen with grace was fully and truly accepted into our lives. I, I had a conversation with a man many, many years ago who had done, committed an egregious act, a number of egregious acts, as it were, and as a result, many people were harmed by his behavior. I'm not talking about you know, something that was illegal, but the harm, nor was it physical, but the harm was emotional and social and, and psychological. He came to see me as his pastor. We had three conversations. In the third one, he said, and I was hoping he would get to this place. I know I need to do something to restore and reconcile with the ones I've harmed. I know I do. There needs to be some restitution. But then in the moment he said that, almost in a flash, he said, but I've been feeling guilty about this every day for years. Isn't that enough? Do you hear what he said? He's choosing guilt over grace. Grace doesn't come to us with guilt. Grace isn't interested in, creating, in making us feel bad, making us feel guilty. Guilt is only good if it opens the doorway to grace. Guilt is not a place to reside. Guilt is not a place to stay. Grace doesn't come saying, now let me, let me shame you here. Let me make you feel bad. No, no, no. Grace is an open invitation to move from that space in the hymn, it was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. The story today focuses on a character named Zacchaeus. Luke says that he was the chief tax collector. This is the only time in the New Testament this phrase, chief tax collector, appears. What Luke is telling us is he's a really awful bad guy. He's a political pariah. He's disgusting. He's getting rich off the backs of his Jewish neighbors and giving some of that off to that corrupt Roman government. He is a terrible person. His name literally means, Zacchaeus literally means righteousness. It's like his name is Mr. Righteousness, but there's no evidence whatsoever in his life that he is a righteous person who cares about anybody else other than himself. He is all about himself. But Luke foreshadows the story and sets us up for thinking, oh, something might happen here. Way back at the beginning of the gospel, about the fourth or fifth chapter or so, Jesus calls his disciples. One of them is a tax collector. In the chapter immediately before this, it's the one that Sarah Keens preached on last week, there's a story of a tax collector who is humbling himself in prayer, acknowledging his need for grace. Maybe something's going to happen here, and truly it does. Zacchaeus, who according to the story was, was a short man, has to run through the crowd and find a, a sycamore tree to climb up in so that he can see Jesus. But Jesus doesn't wait until the crowd sort of moves and brings him to Zacchaeus. Jesus makes his way through the crowd as well and looks up and it's almost in a comical way. He says, Zacchaeus, come down from there. It's happy hour. Let's go to your house. Let's have a drink. Let's have some figs. Let's have some bread. And Zacchaeus, in an amazing, almost miraculous way, says, well, of course, let's do that. It sounds wonderful. They get there, and Zacchaeus says to Jesus, look, I'm going to give 
half of my possessions away to provide care and comfort for the poor. I'm going to reach out to the victims, to the people I've harmed, and I'm going to give them four times whatever it was I took from them in order to restore us into a right relationship. It is truly his name coming true. He's behaving like a righteous character. He is all about righteousness in this moment. When grace comes to, literally comes to his house in the person of Jesus, in the physical person and, and presence of Jesus, he reacts with generosity. Now some, some look at this story and think that it cheapens grace. Some think that there's a transactional uh, temperament here. If you do this, I'll do that for you. You do this, then we'll give you this. You make amends, then we'll forgive you. But one of my favorite theologians says, no, the, the radical acts of generosity demonstrate the radicality of grace in this moment. He experiences grace. Jesus seeks him out while a stranger. God comes to him. Grace comes to his house. They take up, it takes up residence there with Zacchaeus in the moment, and Zacchaeus responds with generosity, with amazing grace. And then Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. 90% of the time when you see the word salvation in the Bible, whether we're talking Genesis or Revelation or any book in between, most of the time that word salvation can be translated as made whole or made well or healed. It's not about getting into heaven. That's not what it's worried about. It's worried about the here and the now. Jesus is declaring to Zacchaeus, because grace has come to you, you've now been made whole. You've been made well. You've been healed. You've been given the gift of a new life, of a new way of being in the world. Grace came home, and life began again. One of my favorite writers is Philip Gully. He comments on this. Let's see what he has to say. When love takes you by the hand and leaves you better, that is home. That's the place to stake your claim and build your life. The commandment to love one another is built on the foundation of grace. The commandment to love one another, to love neighbor, to love enemy is built on the foundation of grace. It's grace that takes us home. It's love that takes us home. When we finally can give ourselves over to that, to leave fear and shame behind and allow the beautiful light of God's grace to shine on us, we will be made well. We will be made whole. We will be healed. Consider the relationships that matter the most to you, the ones you love. Maybe it's your spouse, a child, a parent, your best friend you've known since junior high, a coworker who's really been there to support you, encourage you. Think about that one. If there is a deep sense of love, a bond between you two, I'm about 99.9% .9 certain you've at some point in your, in your relationship, probably more than once, noticed that grace was required and that grace would need to be received. Sometimes you were the one who received it. Sometimes you were the one that it was required from. 
If you say to me, oh, no, I, my, my wife and I, my husband and I, my, my parents, are, or if you say, oh, I've never had anything like that at all, I'm, frankly, I'm going to wonder how deep is your love? Because if there is a deep sense of love, if there's an urgency to your desire to be with that one, there will almost inevitably be more than one occasion when you'll need grace received and grace required. You know, in Acts chapter 10, we hear from a man who used to be named Saul. Do you remember his story? Saul was this man who uh, was a religious leader of his day. He was standing by the side of another man who's being executed because of his theological beliefs. And this man, Saul, is holding the coats of the executioners who are killing a man named Stephen, one of the first deacons in the church. Later, that same horrible person is met by grace. He's literally knocked off the horse, knocked onto his backside, knocked down onto the ground. When grace confronts him, his life begins anew. It begins again. He, he sheds the old self. He, he changes his name from Saul to Paul. And now you know, of course, I'm talking about the Apostle Paul, who is the one who spread Christianity all around the Mediterranean world. He says in Acts chapter 10 that God shows no favorites. God shows no favorites to anyone. God's door is always open. God's door is always open for you and me. In fact, God will walk through that door and come seeking us while we're strangers, while we're lost, in order to bring us home again. Grace challenges, grace confronts, grace finally heals. Like Anne Lamott, I don't always understand the mystery of grace, but we know this, it meets us where we are and does not leave us where it found us. May grace be 